Good morning and welcome to this month's The New PL Monthly Business Book Review Club. I'm Paul, host of The New PL, and I'm very grateful you've taken the time to join us today. We believe business needs a new PL, one that is as much focused on principles and leadership as it is on profit and loss. Because we know if your principles are right and aligned with your purpose, and your leadership has a clear vision and focus and strength and empathy, then your business will be in profit and not loss in so many ways. This week's guest is Dr. Natalie Nixon. Natalie is a creativity strategist, a global keynote speaker, and author of the award-winning The Creativity Leap, unleashing curiosity, improvisation, and intuition at work. As president of creative and strategic consultancy Figure Eight Thinking, Natalie advises leaders on transformation by applying wonder and rigor to amplify growth and business value. So Natalie, a very warm welcome to the new PL Monthly Business Book Review Club. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. My pleasure. Um, it'd be great if you could start by just giving listeners a bit of an overview in terms of what you do and who you do it for. Sure. I am a creativity strategist and the president of Figure Eight Thinking where I advise leadership teams on transformation, specifically through the lens of creativity and foresight. And I really apply wonder and rigor to help them amplify, va amplify value. And sometimes it's transforming their business models. Other times it's transforming their leadership styles. And I really love what I do. We're here today to discuss your brilliant book, The Creativity Leap, which I had the, the pleasure of reading over the last week. Um, I think it'd be great to sort of understand how you came to write the book. What was the thinking behind it? And why now, I guess, for you at the moment? Well, why now is always an interesting question. One never knows when one will launch a book. So I never realized I would be launching the book in the middle of a global health pandemic. Uh, so the book launched in June of 2020. And I wrote The Creativity Leap primarily for two reasons. One was as I was increasingly being invited into companies to help them design and build cultures of innovation, mm -hmm. I increasingly suspected that we may be starting at the wrong place. Um, we throw around what I call the I word quite a bit. We don't always have the same understanding of what we mean by innovation. Mm -hmm. And I realized I couldn't be critical of that stance without offering an alternative. And the more I would observe conditions in different companies and through my own experience and expertise, I decided I actually think we should be starting with creativity. But then that led me to this realization that I couldn't very well lead with creativity because in a lot of corporate hallowed halls, if I were to lead with the word creativity, they'd look at me cross-eyed like, uh, no, we deal with more important stuff than creativity. And so I realized I wanted to figure out a way to offer up a simple and accessible way to democratize creativity so that we would stop siloing it and ghettoizing it in the arts. It just so happens that artists are outstanding at wrestling with the ambiguity of creativity. But in my view, creativity is really the engine for innovation. So one of the reasons I wrote the book was to offer up this more simple and accessible definition of creativity. The other reason I wrote The Creativity Leap is that I am a global keynote speaker and in my speaking keynotes, I, I use my speaking as a way to prototype ideas. And so as I was thinking through, well, what's a way to think about creativity? And I, was, I would be prototyping these frameworks and these two by twos. I'm a bit of a nerd in that way. 
And people will come up to me at the end of my talks and say, that was really interesting. Where can I read more about this? And while I blog for Inc., I realized I didn't have a, you know, a central repository for where I was fleshing out these ideas. So the second reason I wrote The Creativity Leap was really to productize my intellectual capital and to have uh, a central place where people could read more about um, the way my brain works and how I think about creativity. You touched in that answer on the skepticism around creativity as a concept in the, in the hallowed halls of business as you, as you described it. Do you think, or where, do, where do you think that comes from? Is it a fear of the ambiguity as you described it again, a fear of the ambiguity of creativity and perhaps the egos of management and leaders that because they don't understand it, they fear it and because they fear it, they don't want to expose themselves to questioning it if you like. Yes, I think that's exactly it. Is it is this sphere of ambiguity? It's also related to this reality that we have erred on the side of rationality in the way we educate, in the way we expect people to succeed, and what we tend to reward. So, you know, I spent a big chunk of my career as a teacher, as a professor. There's a chapter of my life where I was a middle school English teacher. Right. I also uh, served 16 years, uh, and I believe it's, it's really a service to, to be an educator um, as a professor. I was a professor for 16 years, and, you know, think about, I'll speak, you know, specifically to the United States. We graduate and advance people based on your ability to have the answer, the solution, mm -hmm. fill in the dots on these standardized tests. It takes a lot more time to work through process, to identify multiple possible scenarios. Not every single educational environment and learning culture is like that, but I've been educating quite a diverse round in types of institutions, educational institutions. And so I got exposure to that range and it was really in, in my, my being fortunate to be educated in some really amazing and elitist and elite institutions of higher education. I went to an amazing high school where we had the advantages of, of being encouraged to ask a better question, to err on the side of forgiveness, not permission, to explore process. I've also been educated in urban public school environments where that's not necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. So I think part of this reticence to embrace creativity is just the lack of exposure to it. Um, when we are exposed to it, when, we're, when we articulate creativity out loud, it tends to only be in the arts. So if you have been gifted with the ability to study music, dance, visual arts, etc., then that's where you are encouraged to engage in process, where it's all about being the more experimental, the better. Um, and yet, in my view, the most exceptional engineers, entrepreneurs, farmers, teachers, etc., are incredibly creative, especially in the way I define it, which is that creativity is about toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems. Yes. You touched there on sort of the education system and the focus on rational thinking and so on. But if we are to look across a growing number of disciplines, I guess, and creativity is a good example, but also behavioral economics as well. Um, there does seem to be a, 
a slow but a growing embrace for the irrationality of human thinking and how we adapt to that and how we consider that in business. Do you think that is a that's a good sign for the future of leadership and management that we're beginning to understand the irrationality of it and and seeing it as a positive, not as a negative. Totally. I'm so happy you brought up behavioral economics. You know, maybe if I had known about behavioral econ in college, I would have studied it. Um, <laughs> you know, love the work of Richard Thaler, yes. uh, who really was at the forefront of identifying, you know, hey folks, markets are made up of humans and therefore markets are inconsistent, imperfect, and not predictive. And I observe that shift in the business fields and economics while I was studying for my PhD, because there's a, there's a part in a PhD learning process where you have to do something called a literature review, where you, you, know, you gotta know what's out there in order to prove that you've actually contributed to the field of knowledge. And when I had to read all of this business literature, what I observed, something really funny started happening pre-early 80s and then 1980s and beyond in business literature. So pre-80s, business scholarship um, was trying so hard to appear more like the hard sciences. So you'd have a paper that would start out with a hypothesis in H1, H2, H3, and then it would go, you know, in a very methodical, rational way and debunk, you know, the different hypotheses and then prove why, you know, their, their thoughts were on point. And then in the 80s, all of a sudden, you know, you basically you're seeing more of an integration of the role of psychology and anthropology and social and, and that markets are made up of humans. And so even there we saw, and so this is in the recent past that we saw, we're seeing this admission that um, markets are made up of humans. In my view, organizations are organisms because they're made up of humans. And so I think even things like the COVID-19 pandemic have nudged more business leaders to really be more accepting and shift and soften in their ways of thinking about leading. And especially now that we are in this fourth industrial revolution where, you know, a basic task will be taken over by robotics or by AI, there will be casualties in this fourth industrial revolution, the opportunity is to make more room for the human to show up because basic tasks will be taken over. So I think I, th I am optimistic about what that means for how we design work. And that's a really interesting point. And I wondered what your view was on how the human also shows up in leadership as we go into the fourth industrial revolution and how the both the creative ideation process, but also the creative delivery process can help those leaders both become more human, but also more agile in their approach to how the businesses navigate the fourth industrial revolution. Yes, I, it's, it's my observation. And still, it's only a few minority of cases right now, but I, I think the opportunity is to see more inquiry-based leadership. Yeah. Uh, leaders who lead with questions. And what I mean by that, it's not enough just to say, okay, guys, I welcome your questions because, you know, we, most of us have been educated in environments where like, you don't want to ask a question because A, when you ask a question, it's an admission of ignorance, but like, so what? You don't know the answer. So you got to ask the question. 
B, um, you know, they're shaming around asking questions, unfortunately, again, it's in some, for some people from their educational experiences. So it's not enough for a leader to say, okay, give me all your questions. We welcome questions. It actually has to be modeled by the leader. And one of the ways the leader can model curiosity and inquiry is to be very self-reflexive and reflective and share questions that they have about themselves, about the state of the organization, about a willingness to pause, a possibility to pivot, because that modeling of asking questions about the process opens up the floodgates for people to um, say, well, maybe this is not going to be such a punitive environment if, if I ask a question and it turns out that um, I'm wrong. And in nine out of 10 cases, other people quietly have are pondering the same question that you have. So you might as well go for it. But it definitely helps when leaders are modeling. It's not just enough to say it, but to model it in their own behaviors. Part of the, I guess, the modeling of a more inquiry-led culture is to not just ask different questions, but also test the assumptions upon which you are deciding on what questions to ask. And that gets back to the heart of our conscious and unconscious bias and so on. How do we build, in order to build that culture of inquiry, how do we first reframe the assumptions upon which we are basing that questioning? Um, I think it helps in terms of who do we have around us? You know, one of the traps for some leaders is to have, um, well, one of the people I interviewed, this is a great quote from Michael Foreman, who's the founder and head of FS Investments, uh, a finance firm um, based in my hometown, Philadelphia. Um, he calls it the tyranny of no. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes when leaders enclose themselves around but around with people who will only who are only yes people um that's dangerous because you're not necessarily hearing the feedback you need to hear so there's that layer of who is in your immediate circle um but the other way of building uh inquiry-based leadership is to have cognitive diversity mm -hmm. ethnic diversity age diversity gender diversity in the room and the environment. Um, because, you know, you and I, for example, have totally different backgrounds, different reference points. I can't possibly think of the sorts of questions that you would pose that would be super helpful in certain problem solving situations and, and vice versa. You couldn't possibly think of the questions I would pose. And I, I made up a, a phrase, which I think is really important here, which is that the more diverse the inputs, the more innovative the output. And inputs sorry, questions are inputs. Questions are types of inputs into a system. So if we start posing new and different questions, which, which can't come from only the same people in the room and the same sorts of people around the table, then we will um, ignite new perspectives. And sometimes that perspective, that perspective does not need to be a 180 degree shift. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a five degree shift. Yeah. A lot of the time it's like a five or seven degree shift, which totally opens up a new viewpoint and a new way of understanding opportunities and, and shifts that need to happen in the ways that we work. You've touched on a, in a couple of answers around innovation and the, clearly the importance of innovation in terms of 
creativity and the way it's weaved into it. And you discuss in your book the role that innovation labs play in fostering and within a corporate. And I've discussed innovation labs a few times on the new PL, and quite often the the conversation is built around how you balance the freedom that an innovation lab needs to, to be innovative, to be creative, to sit apart from the corporate, but also close enough to the corporate that that innovation that they're moving through is in alignment with the vision and the, and the direction of the business. How does an innovation lab balance that freedom and that alignment? Well, I think we have to think of innovation labs, innovation centers as that very critical first phase of truly building cultures of innovation. And I encourage your listeners to look up the work of Sabine Junginger. She's, um, I, I consider her a colleague in arms and she's a brilliant mind in design thinking and innovation. And she has this elegant, simple diagram, which um, I, I first saw her doodle on a whiteboard in, in a, um, a retreat conference that we were both attending for design strategy, design thinking type work. And I'll try to verbally describe it, but basically she maps out four phases that organizations go through in integrating innovation. And phase one is imagine your organization is this big circle and then there's a little circle outside of it. And that little circle represents innovation mm -hmm. or could represent design or could represent creativity, right? So phase one is your organization, the big circle, and there's that little circle outside of it. And that, that visual represents you hire consultants, right? You get advisors from outside of your organization to help you figure out how do we start building this culture of innovation? Phase two is now you see the big circle, your organization, you see a little circle inside of it. That's when you have innovation centers and innovation hubs, right? So now you've, you've built kind of this incubator internally to help you um, uh, disrupt yourselves, hopefully on a consistent basis. The next phase is you have the big circle, which is your organization. And then you see that little circle saturated in some other medium-sized circles. In other words, innovation or design or creativity is now become a part of the way manufacturing works or sales works or finance works. And then finally, the last visual is that big circle and it's totally saturated with whatever you know the color was of that little circle and meaning that now you become an innovation led innovation driven company the the heart, the chasm that in my view is hardest to bridge is from phase 2 to phase 3 phase 2 when you have this innovation center to when you really want to inculcate these other departments divisions, literally divisions, um, with innovation techniques, mindsets, um, incentives, um, becomes part of the KPIs, becomes part of the way you are reviewed and, and promoted, etc. Um, it's hard to go from, you know, the innovation center, which can be reduced to the place where people play with post-its all day, which is which is pretty offensive, and um, but often is is what uh, ends up uh, happening um, in terms of perception, um, and then really leaping over to being innovation being saturated throughout the organization, and that requires leadership, that requires incentivization, that requires allotting budget, time, resources. Uh, to make this really happen. 
A previous guest we had on the show probably six months ago, Ten Daiviki, he's a UK-based innovation consultant, and he wrote a book called Pirates in the Navy. And one of the phrases he used within his book was about lighting little fires of innovation throughout the throughout the business. And that sort of sounds like the phase two to phase three, where you start to permeate a culture of creativity and innovation. I guess the the challenge with that is then how do you manage that curate or how do you manage that creativity? How do you extract all of the ideas, curate it, and harness the best of those ideas to to build the business and continue to to positively um, build creativity throughout the business. How do you, once you've created those little fires or built that phase two into phase three, how do you then effectively manage and curate the creativity that is starting to thrive within an organization? That, in my view, is a mindset issue, which, which is directly linked to culture. Yeah. And I, I always remind people that when we have shifts in mindset, that leads to shifts in behaviors, which leads to shifts in culture and culture change. So um, to make sure those little tiny fires are sustained and don't, and don't, don't burn out, it um, requires that you're hiring differently. And hopefully you're, you're not, you don't keep drawing from the same well when you're hiring. It requires that you offer, hopefully, you tap a little bit into my model of wonder and rigor uh, because you can't innovate going 80 miles an hour. Yeah. You need the wonder, which is about pausing and awe and deep curiosity and really blue sky audacious questions. You have to design on the space and time continuum for wonder and you have to design on the space and time continuum for rigor. And rigor is about discipline and deep focus and time on task. And you know, it's often requires you to repeat the fundamentals and it's not particularly sexy and it is essential. So that's an example of what, however that shows up in your organizational culture, my framing of wonder and rigor, that needs to be baked into the way you approach hiring, the way you approach running meetings, the way you approach um, uh, rewarding and incentivizing people, the way you approach interacting with clients. Yeah. I, if we can touch a bit more on wonder and rigor, because I loved your phrase, wisdom begins in wonder. And that was the, the start of the chapter on, on the wonder rigor paradigm. And there's a, a belief, at least in my experience, that seems to be remarkably persistent in business. And that is that a good idea, once hatched, will somehow magically transform itself towards some remarkable success on its own. And I'd love you to talk me through how the balance of wisdom and rigor and wonder and rigor in a business, your processes, how they ensure that the creative idea, that, that the genesis of something beautiful is actually delivered. So um, I cannot take credit for wisdom and, and, and wonder. I might've said a variation of what actually Socrates said. And I was delighted when I learned that some real intellectual heavy hitters throughout civilization I've given a lot of credence yes. to wonder because I've got to tell you when I first started playing around with this definition of creativity I was really a bit shy about saying the word wonder out loud in business meetings because I thought people would think oh, okay that's some woo-woo stuff uh we're you know that's nothing to do with the work at hand but what as as I grew developed the confidence to bring it up 
more regularly, I would notice people would lean forward, their faces would relax, their eyes would light up. And so as Socrates said that, um, I think I think his, because I always quote either Socrates or Abraham Heschel, who was a Jewish theologian and civil rights activist many centuries later, but I believe it was Socrates who said that, um, that uh, wonder is the root of wisdom. And I might've said a variation of that as, as I was writing that chapter. Um, but the way that wonder and rigor ensures that creativity and innovation are happening on a regular basis is actually because in my view, the capabilities of wonder, the capabilities of rigor are things that are innate to us. If you think about um, the ways that we behaved as children. Now, we may not have been down so much for the rigor, but you know, I think about my younger sister who was so diligent about building mud pies. She would get lost in her thoughts and she had a very rigorous, disciplined approach to that. So whatever, is, whatever your jam is, and we all had one as, as, as children, um, it actually was quite innate. So was the wonder. The wonder is more, much more easy to see and how we are designed as little humans. We are full of questions, the smallest things. You know, I was the summertime here in Philly, which we have a really hot summer right now. And I was sitting outside the other night when the temperatures were cooling down a bit. And I was just basking in looking at the backyard full of fireflies. Yeah lightning bugs. And I started thinking, man, I have not allowed myself to really sit on a summer evening and just stare into the darkness and just marvel at the, the twinkling, the bioluminescence of these fireflies. They're, they're really amazing. Yeah. And then I started thinking about how as kids, we'd ask our mom to get an empty jelly or a peanut butter jar and She'd take a screwdriver and, and jab holes into the lid. Yep. And then we could run around outside for a set amount of time and catch as many fireflies as we could and just giggle and laugh at that light that would appear. So the, in my view, organizational design and the way that we design work is inside out work. And that is connected again to my insistence that we remember that organizations are organisms. So the more that we can connect the dots between how we are innately designed, our proclivities for wonder, our ability to really engage in rigor when it's stuff that we love, um, and even when it's stuff that we don't love, then that translates into our work. It has to translate into our work. Another word for wonder is curiosity or a very similar word is curiosity. And I wanted to explore a slightly broader question with you, whether you think that algorithms assist or inhibit our curiosity. So um, I always remind people that the algorithm is still going to require a human being to ask a better friggin' question, <laughs> right? The algorithms don't just magically appear. They are driven by questions from people who are observing problems in the world, problems in the marketplace. So, um, to, sorry, say, say the, say, I wanna make sure I'm answering your question correctly. Say, reframe your question again for me, please. I mean, I was just really saying that curiosity is the heart of creativity. And, and in order for us to be 
more creatively expansive. We need to be more curious. One of the concerns I, I, I have is that algorithms are funneling us down a certain channel based on what we've searched for previously. But also we have an opportunity to explore the whole internet, which should expand curiosity. But I just, I wondered whether algorithmic mechanisms are narrowing the funnel and the expanse of our curiosity or enabling greater curiosity? Well, that depends. So back to my point, the reminder that the algorithm still requires a person to ask a better and different question. You know, there's, there's great work coming out of MIT Media Lab. I'm, I'm right now I'm blanking on the name of this brilliant woman who's a researcher at MIT Media Lab. She does all these amazing TED Talks. Um, we'll find her for your liner notes, but, um, you know, she does incredible research on bias and AI, mm -hmm. right? So it, it goes back to the necessity to have cognitive diversity, ethnic diversity, gender diversity, because no matter my training, you know, I personally don't believe there's any such thing as objectivity. If we're really honest, I'm still going to bring my particular biases and lens. I can, I can try to guard against it because of my training, at least if I'm aware that it can sneak in, that's a plus. Um, but to assume that, that people's personal biases won't sneak in is a real miss. Let's just acknowledge that it's highly likely they will sneak in. And then how can we convert them to something positive? How can we convert this acknowledgement that, huh, because I am um, an Asian American man in my forties who grew up in, uh, Brooklyn, New York, I tend to think about, um, supermarkets in X way, even despite my training, like that, that's helpful to know. Same with my own background and perspectives and experiences. So, um, I think that the opportunity to avoid this rabbit hole that a lot of people, I mean, there's a great podcast called Rabbit Hole that's talking about technology and this present uh, fourth industrial revolution and the future of work. One way to guard against it is that constant deliberate um, self-examination and making sure that we are totally inclusive in the process of, of understanding who's in the room, who, who, who gets to design um, encode the algorithms, who, who gets educated to design, encode algorithms, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. My favorite chapter in the book was the one around improv improvising, improvisation in business and the, the need for business to leverage organized chaos in the commercial and corporate world. And you use the example of the, the incredible Ella Fitzgerald when she forgot her second stanza in a song at a live performance and just started to improvise and scat and that recording ended up winning a Grammy and I'm an avid music fan. So I read this chapter with so much fascination about the comparison you were making between business and music or jazz musicians specifically. And I guess the one challenge I had with that comparison and I'd love to explore with you is in a jazz band, there are, they have two fundamental components that enable successful improvisation. They've got vast musical knowledge and, and you give a nod to that with your Charlie Parker quote in the chapter. And they also have a deep, respectful collaboration and cohesion within that band that allows supporting musicians to both trust where the improviser is going, but also have an intuitive feel for where they're coming back to, I guess, in, in the tune. And the same couldn't really be said for 
lots of businesses because they don't always have that vast knowledge um, right across the business and they don't always have that intuitive understanding of where each other are going. So how, do, how does a business set a solid foundation for improvisation to ensure that what they want to achieve and what they want to deliver is based on the foundation of knowledge, trust, cohesion, and intuition? Well, I really think the guidebook, the playbook for that was mapped out by Frank Barrett, uh, who greatly influenced me in my work. Um, Frank Barrett came up with these seven uh, principles, uh, a jazz heuristic that could be transferable to the way we understand the design of organizations. So things like embracing mistakes. You know, in jazz, there's no such thing as a mistake. There's an offer and you got to go with it. You got to build on it. And actually people are more impressed with how you build on it, not that you just stop playing. You put your hands on your hips, like that's not the right key, right? <laughs> you got you to keep it moving. And so your genius is exhibited by your ability to keep it, keep it moving. Same in rap music, same in, um, in comedic improv, right? It's about, it's about embracing the offer. So, there's, so embracing mistakes is, so how does that look in an organization? I get, and I gave a TEDx Philadelphia talk about this. You know, in organizations that embrace mistakes, one organization that I love and the way they do this is the Ritz-Carlton. Mm -hmm. So at every property around the world, every day, uh, whether you are a maid, working in the boiler room, working in the front of the house, there's a lineup meeting. And one of the things you review or something that they call Mr. Bivs, which is a mnemonic that stands for mistakes, revisions, breakdowns, inefficiencies, and variations. And what that begins to do in a 20 minute amount of time or maybe five minutes to just spend on Mr. Bivs is you begin to normalize breakdowns and then you get to revise. You know, we had a wedding party here yesterday and we ran out of X, Y, Z. Has anyone else ever had that situation? What did you guys do? If no one in your immediate group can figure it out, then you put it on the internet and you incentivize teams to, you gamify it, you offer, they can because of the Ritz-Carlton, they offer trips to fabulous locations for people who can come up with really cool ways to do a rework. So that's an example of embracing mistakes that's normalized in a way that it's not punitive. It's actually all about learning. Um, another principle that Frank Barrett talks about is soloing and supporting and the way this might, so in jazz music, I always go back to uh, one of my favorite jazz drummers, Art Blakey, who was the head of the quintet or the quartet, whatever he was leading at the time. But, but physically in his position on stage, he was recessed to the back in part because he's the drummer. Um, but he would recede to the back. He would allow others to um, lead and to shine and, and to um, have, their, have their moment. So it's this back and forth, this give and take between soloing and then supporting. So what does that look like in an organization? Well, in meetings, uh, how do you rotate meetings or design them in a way where people who are younger, people who are less tenured, people who um, are, are on the margins get to lead, get to um, really, uh, shine with their particular ideas and how do you do it in an intentional way, not in a one-off once a year sort of way. So those are just a couple of examples. And I'd encourage people to read up on Frank Barrett, check out my TEDx talk uh, to understand more of these brilliant ways that we can learn from jazz music. And it's totally 
transferable to organizations. Just as an aside, I know your doctoral thesis was based around applying the jazz heuristic to Ritz-Carlton, and I would, if it's available, I would love to have a read of that thesis. Well, thank you for asking. It happens to be available. I actually have a link to the PDF on my LinkedIn profile, so it's good bedside reading. <laughs> but I'll, I'll send you, I'll send you the PDF. But but ha happy to share. Absolutely. Thank you very much. The intentional element that you've just talked about and committing to identifying those seven principles and applying them in the business takes a special kind of leadership. Um, so I wondered what you believe the characteristics of great creative leadership in business is? What are the characteristics that define a great creative leader? I would really refer back to what I call the three eyes. And I, I landed on this framework of the three eyes because I realized it wasn't enough to recommend to people, okay, guys, toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems, off you go and you'll be fine. It's not that easy. So how do we exercise this toggling between wonder and rigor? And so the three eyes are inquiry, which is about asking better questions. It's about, you know, Warren Berger, who wrote a great book called A More Beautiful Question. He's even an advocate of, you know, we should be educating and teaching people. He calls it questionology. He made up that phrase. I love that. But, you know, we should be teaching people the art and skill and craft of asking questions. There's a, there are techniques behind how do you ask questions, making sure you're asking open-ended questions. How do you phrase questions? How do you build on questions? Um, so in, that's, that's what inquiry is. And you and I already talked earlier in our conversation about how important it is for leaders to model inquiry and not just invite questions. Um, the second I, and these again are not in a linear order, but I'm just listing them in this way. The second I is improvisation. And improvisation is not about being able to do an impressive jazz solo. It's about being adaptive and emergent and self-organizing. Actually, all of those descriptors of improvisation are the same descriptors of complex systems. And that's because improvisation is a complex system and like the textbook definition of complexity as is creativity. So the more we can design um, the way we work, our, our companies, our teams in ways that they can be self-organizing, where there's not a permission slip culture, where they can be adaptive, they are allowed to pivot according to the needs of clients and to the needs internally, um, the better off we will be. And the third is intuition. And I remember I interviewed over 50 people who come from a range of sectors for the Creativity Leap. And I was interviewing the CEO of Vectorworks, a, a tech software company. And uh, Biplab Sarkar is the CEO. He's a PhD in electrical engineering. I thought, oh my gosh, when I get to the point where I have to ask him about intuition, he's probably gonna laugh me out the room. And al contraire, he gave me so many great stories and examples of the ways he totally embraces intuition for strategic decision-making. The best leaders, the most successful leaders acknowledge the role of intuition, which in my view is pattern recognition. Sometimes I call intuition brain feelings. Other people call intuition the knowing without knowing, but it's that internal nudge. And by the way, physiologically, we are designed and hardwired to be intuitive because we have something in our bodies called the vagus nerve not like Las Vegas, but V-A-G-U-S. Mm -hmm. And it extends from our cranium down through our heart into our gut. 
So we say things like, my gut is telling me, well, it kind of is. So we have this, this internal antenna. Actually, the vagus nerve is the second longest nerve in the body. The first longest nerve is, this, is the spinal cord, which is actually an extension of the brain. And, and I am, I've I got interested in more of the physiology, the neuroscience of creativity after publishing the Creativity Leap. And I've been doing a lot more reading about um, the autonomic nervous system, specifically the parasympathetic nervous system. I think because coming out of COVID, coming, getting through the quarantine, I, I just was, became more increasingly interested in how are people gonna really take advantage of this time to pause? And then I started wondering, well, how can I convince people it's important to pause, to slow down? Well, it's important for our well-being, and it actually leads to greater insights and better innovation and happier people um, when we allow the parasympathetic nervous system, which is that nervous the part of our nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system is, you know, we don't need to tell our hearts to, to beat or our, our digestive systems to go, go at it, to, to break down food. Um, that's... That's, that's part of the autonomic system. Um, and things like uh, fight flight, uh, uh, what is it called? I think it's called greed breed. Mm -hmm. These are all parts of the parasympathetic nervous system and intuition, the vagus nerve are also part of the parasympathetic nervous system. So anyway, leaders who embrace inquiry, who allow themselves to improvise, allow, give space and room for their teams to improvise and to, who really embrace intuition for strategic decision-making um, along with the, you know, the usual suspects of hard data. Um, the, these are ways to really bake in creativity into the culture of an organization. That's a really fascinating answer. And it, it prompted me to think within the three I, inquiry, improvisation, intuition, are there two that rely on the foundational establishment of the other one in order for them to be better? So does inquiry and improvisation rely on intuition? Do you have to have intuition first or do you have to have a natural leaning towards inquiry to be more in touch with your intuition and improvisation or are they fairly evenly weighted in terms of the characteristic? I think they are equal opportunity. They're all waiting to be ignited and we have to just start. We have to not be afraid of asking questions of ourselves, of framing new and different questions. We can't be afraid of being a bit more experimental of admitting we don't know what's gonna happen. We don't know what the outcome will be. We have to start paying attention to our guts. I mean, we all, we all have our own, inventory of our lives and personal evidence of what happens when we listen to our intuition and when we don't. So it, it's really, they're, they're all intertwined. Um, the, you know, the intuition begets better question asking and questions allow us, permit us to be a bit more improvisational, especially when they're open-ended. There is, I think, a concrete way we can exercise the three eyes. And that's what I call become a clumsy student of something. Because when you're, when you don't, when you're no longer the expert in the room, you have no idea what you're doing. You feel totally awkward. You feel like you're groping in the dark. Um, that's when you have to be more intuitive. That's when you've got to ask a better question to the instructor or to your peers. That's when you have to be much more adaptive and improvise. And, you know, 
I, I continue to be a clumsy student of, of social ballroom dance, even through the quarantine. We had masks on and we, you know, there were a small tribe of us who consistently would show up. And I, I got better at being more intuitive and improvising more and, and, and asking better questions because you realize sometimes you got to rephrase the question. It's, it's, it's not getting across your, your confusion is not really being is not being communicated well until you 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 shake up the way you're asking the question or ask it to a different person so that's a very concrete specific thing that we all can do that's actually quite fun um in order to practice those three eyes i love the idea of a clumsy student i think i've probably been one for my entire life inadvertently true that <laughs> <laughs> absolutely natalie we always end our conversations on the new pnl by or with guests offering a couple of key takeaways for our listeners to think about and go away and use in their business. So when it comes to creativity in business, what are one or two things that business leaders listening today, what could they do tomorrow to try and activate or encourage a creativity at the heart of their business, I guess? Well, one thing they can do for their organizations is to insist on cognitively diverse teams, on ethnically diverse teams. And that and they may find that they ain't got much in the current state. So that means they have to start hiring differently. So that's one that they can start doing. And actually, I love, you know, Jerry Hirschberg, who used to be the head of design for Nissan, he came up with a phrase he called creative abrasion, where he would insist on any design challenge his team was working on for the automotive company, he would require people from finance and HR and manufacturing and sales be part of the problem solving process. Now, most of us really don't look forward to collaborating. We're like, oh my gosh, we could do this so much faster by ourselves. Why do we have to bring these other people? We have to explain so much to them. So the lift at the beginning, yeah, it's hard because we have to explain our own jargon. Other people have to explain their jargon to us. And yet what Hirschberg understood was that that, uh, that uh, abrasion and friction results in energy. So why not convert that energy into something positive? So that's, that's one very concrete thing um, leaders can start doing. And the other thing on a personal level, I would encourage leaders to become a clumsy student of something. Like enough of your work, like what do, what do you, have you always wanted to play chess, learn chess? Have you always wanted to learn to knit? Have you always wanted to start a vegetable garden or have you, whatever it is, uh, try it, become a student of it. And I don't have scientific evidence of this. This is only anecdotal, but when we are clumsy students of something outside of our work, as we're asking more questions, as we're allowing ourselves to be more improvisational, as we're being more intuitive, those neural synapses in our brains are being fired up mm -hmm. so that when we go back to the work at hand, we find ourselves also have a bit more confidence to ask a question, to say, I don't know, let's try this, to be a bit more adaptive. That's, that's been my experience and, and other people have co-signed on it. So I haven't done any kind of uh, scientific research about that, but that's my nudge. That's my hypothesis. So, so go be a, a, a clumsy student of something. Natalie, that has been a fabulous 50 minutes. Thank you so much for your time today on the new PL. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about what Natalie and her team do, please go to figure8thinking.com. That's the word figure, the numeral eight, and the word thinking.com. And you'll also find the link in the notes that accompany this podcast.
And in addition, in the notes that accompany this podcast, you'll also find links to download Natalie's Wonder Rigger tip sheet, as well as a free sampler chapter of The Creativity Leap itself, a book that I can't recommend highly enough. So finally, thank you once again for listening to this month's The New PL Monthly Business Book Review Club. If you like what you've heard, please do take a moment to rate us or review us. We genuinely appreciate it. I'm Paul, host of The New PL. Have a great day and speak soon.